It's hard for me to believe that we're poised here on December 31st in the final hours of the year. And I've been thinking, considering what it is we need, what it is I need to step into a new year with confidence. I've been praying about that and thinking about that for some weeks now. Here's where I end up. You've heard the statement, seeing is believing. I think that statement refers to our doubt or distrust. We, we're not likely to believe anything until we see it with our own eyes. We need visual evidence. You've heard him. I'll, I'll believe pigs can fly when I see it with my own eyes. I mean, I'll believe we, we want to we see, we want to touch. The statement seeing is believing is about verifying facts. Things we've been told, statements that have been made by providing visual or tangible evidence that proves the statement. Here's the problem. In our day, with the ability to Photoshop images and create false video footage, we are increasingly unwilling to believe things even when we see them with our own eyes. Remember the picture of the Pope wearing the ballooned, puffy, winter white coat? It was all fake. Someone Photoshopped the Pope into that coat and everyone wanted to see the Pope wear that puffy coat, but just wasn't true. Eyes can be deceiving. Fake and doctored photos are causing our trust to erode in everything. We hear all the time about research being faked and stories being twisted. The president of Harvard, we're not sure if she plagiarized or not. And we're just confused about what is true because we live in a day when lying has been elevated to an art form. But today I'm not talking specifically about the evidence we need in order to believe. And I'm not talking just about seeing and believing. I'm talking about something that drives a little deeper than that. In Matthew eleven fifteen, 15, Jesus is speaking about John the Baptist and he says, if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. And then he adds these words, whoever has ears, let him hear. In Matthew 13, after the parable of the sower and the four different kinds of soil, Jesus says, whoever has ears, let them hear. In Matthew 13, 43, after the parable of uh, the man who owned a field and whose enemies came and sowed weeds in the field with his grain. And Jesus says, both will grow together. At the end of the age, they will be harvested together. And then Jesus will divide the wheat from the trash. He uses the word chaff. And then he says, whoever has ears, let him hear. He adds, the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. Whoever has ears, let him hear. 
And when Jesus is talking about the cost of being a disciple in Luke 14, he says, salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is fit neither for the soil nor for the manure pile. It is thrown out. Whoever has ears, let them hear, is what he says. It hasn't been that long since I preached a series of sermons about the seven letters written to the churches in Revelation. And you know, every one of those stinking letters ends, whoever has ears, let him hear. I think that what Jesus is saying and what John is writing and what's in view here is there's a difference between seeing something and perceiving what it means. There's a difference between just seeing it and understanding. Here's, here's one way seeing and perceiving are different. Back in January 1986, many of us saw the disaster unfold on television when the Challenger shuttle exploded. We saw that, we saw what had happened, and we, we understood that this was a disaster we understood rather quickly that the people who were on that shuttle had perished. And we as a nation grieved that loss. We felt, we felt badly about that. But I didn't really understand all of it until a good number of years later, when the Whitney's moved to Henniker, New Hampshire, which is right next to Concord, New Hampshire, and I discovered that the planetarium there carries the name of Krista McAuliffe. And we went to the planetarium and we learned about her life. And then when I was getting prepared to do a funeral, I went to the cemetery in Concord and I found her grave there, large grave at the top of the hill. And, and I began to understand that she taught at Concord High School and that her students are all over the city who grieved still that loss. And I began to perceive what the meaning of that loss was to a particular community. I couldn't have understood it from where I was in 1986 in Virginia Beach, Virginia, all that was happening. I saw the pictures on television, but when I moved into their town, I understood something at a deeper level. It was a lot like my trip to the Cape Verde Islands in 2001. I had been pastoring Portuguese-speaking people for three years by that time. I had heard lots of their stories of, of immigration, of persecution in the old world, things that they missed, but I really didn't understand their lives until I flew over to the Cape Verde Islands and set foot in their soil. And then I walked to their marketplace and I shopped with them. I did my best to understand what little bit of Portuguese I had, and that was very little. And I began to see the homes, and I began to see and question why so many of the exterior of the homes was unfinished. Why were they unfinished? Well, you didn't have to pay taxes on it until the house was done. So what was the incentive to finish the exterior of your home? That was part of the culture there. I heard about comediage, which is food for the angels, which is where a woman would prepare a large part of stew or 
fish chowder or whatever, and she would yell that at her door, and that meant all the poor kids in the neighborhood could come in and have food. And I learned about this, this community of compassion and caring, and what they missed, but also what they didn't miss, and how hard it was to move from that culture to the one they were now stuck in in America. And then I began to perceive the meaning of the stories that they were telling me. In Isaiah 6, 1, we're told that Isaiah had a vision in the year that King Uzziah died. That time indicator is important, the year the king died. Uzziah reigned 52 years in Israel. At first, he was an excellent king, not so great at the end. But he was a first cousin to Isaiah. And so unless you know that they're related, you don't particularly know what's going on in Isaiah as he experiences not only the discomfort at the loss of a national uh, leader and the potential chaos that would ensue from something like that, but also the fact that this was a loss of a family member. So there's grieving going on. And in the midst of the grief and in the midst of the chaos and the transition, Isaiah has this incredible vision. But he more than just sees the Lord high and lifted up in his vision. He, he perceives, you, you've heard the passage, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up, and the train of his glory filled the temple, and the temple posts were shaken, and, and it goes on to express all that Isaiah saw in this vision. But what caught my attention was this. In the midst of the vision, Isaiah finally perceives who he himself is. He sees the magnificence of God, and his response is, Woe to me, I cried, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. This is a statement of perception. I can see myself for who I am. It is a great gift to be able to honestly see ourselves for who we are. We humans tend to be somewhat deceitful when it comes to seeing ourselves as we really are. We are spin masters. We are told in scripture that our hearts are deceitful and still we usually want to believe the best about ourselves. It's certainly true of me. Inside my head, I always place the best motives on all my actions. I always look favorably on my own choices. I'm an expert at making excuses for my own shortcomings. It's almost as if my heart was conspiring to help me see myself in the best possible light all the time. And the unfortunate problem that this creates is that it works against our efforts to improve. If we were really wanting to be transformed more and more into the image of Christ, our unwillingness to see ourselves for what we really are, that would be a stumbling block to our transformation. But even that matter of perception 
isn't the perception problem I most want to consider this morning. When we read the Advent story, we hear again and again this passage from Isaiah 9. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. The people of Israel have seen a great light. They are told of the one who will come, the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting father, the prince of peace. But they surely don't know what it means. They see, but they do not perceive. Centuries later, the shepherds seem to be more perceptive. They're told that a savior has been born. They travel to see with their own eyes. And then they spread the news according to Luke 2.20. The shepherds return glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. Their witness to what happened lets us know that they understood that they had witnessed a miracle. But I do wonder, was their witness confined to the fact that what the angels predicted they actually saw come to pass? Did they really perceive everything that the baby in the manger would be? I don't know. We're not told in the narrative. But John tells us a little more, writing many decades after the birth of Jesus, after the death of Jesus, after the resurrection of Jesus, decades after the Holy Spirit is given to the church, John tells us in John 1, looking back on what happened in Bethlehem, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. No one has ever seen God, verse 18 says. But the one and only Son, who is himself God, and is the, in closest relationship with the Father, he has made him known. The Son has made God known. John tells us what we saw, what we have seen in Jesus is the expressed glory of God. In Jesus, we see God. God is revealed. God who was only ever partially revealed through the covenants, through his relationship with Jesus, and through his relationship with Israel, I mean, in the Old Testament histories and in the prophetic books, that same God who was the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the God of David and Isaiah and Elijah, the God of Esther, Ruth, and Rachel, the same God is revealed in Jesus Christ. And I guess the question is, can you see it? Can you see it? We've just spent several months celebrating the birth of a baby. We've all seen babies. We're tempted to look into the manger and see our own babies and remember, remember cuddling our own babies and all that attended that time of caring for babies. We understand the joy of new birth and the miracle that every birth is. 
So we understand the joy that, un- that surrounds the birth of Jesus, but when we stare into that manger bed, do we perceive everything that is there? We see the baby, but do we see the boy who gets lost in the temple being about his father's business? Do we see the man wading into the Jordan to be baptized by John? The man who pleased the father and on whom the spirit descended in bodily form? Do we see the teacher who changed water into wine, calmed the elements of nature, healed every disease, cast out demons, fed the people with the bread of heaven? Do we see the teacher who gave us the new command, love one another? Do we see the one who on the night of his greatest trial took time to wrap a towel around his waist to give us the lingering reminder of who we are supposed to become, servants of one another? Do we see the innocent man, tortured and humiliated, who carried the weight of the sins of the world to Calvary's cross to pay the price of the sins that belonged to us, not to him? Do we see those haunting eyes, dimmed by what he endured, wondering why he could no longer see or perceive the Father's eyes? Do we understand the true nature and horribleness of our sinfulness as we look at what Jesus must endure in order to erase those very sins? Do we perceive what it means for us to know that the Father accepts the sacrifice of this baby, this Messiah, this Christ, and that because of the expression of Christ's love for us, we can be forgiven and we can have new and eternal life in Him? Do we perceive the meaning of the victory Jesus achieves over sin and death? Do we understand that what Isaiah saw in his vision is the same thing that we ought to be able to see when we peer into the manger and see the baby lying there. When we see the baby, do we see the Lord high and lifted up, his train, his glory filling the temple? Are we moved to shout, woe is me, I am undone. Undone by the glory of the one who lies in the manger. Or are we just seeing a baby, a baby like the ones we've seen before? If all we see is a baby every Christmas, we will never be moved to react inappropriate ways. If all we see is a little guy bundled in some cloth, well, our eyes will have let us down. There is so much more to see and so much more to understand. It will take the eyes of our hearts. It will take the eyes of our minds. It will take the revelation of the Holy Spirit if we are ever going to perceive all that there is to see. 
And the minute that we see it, the minute that we have that aha experience where we suddenly find things coming into focus for us, all that will be left in that moment will be worship. Fall on your knees, oh hear the angel voices, or oh come let us adore him, or this, this is Christ the King, whom shepherds guard and angels sing. Do we perceive who he is? Does the evidence of our lives point to the fact that we have perceived who this baby is? At a minimum, there's got to be a woe is me moment somewhere down the timeline. There's got to be a moment, if I really perceive who Jesus is, where I recognize how unlike him I am. And I have this opportunity to confess my unworthiness before him and yet receive his love and acceptance in the face of my unworthiness. What an amazing gift it is. There has to be a moment when I recognize that unless God does something for me, I'm hopeless. In Isaiah's vision, a coal was taken from the altar, pressed to the lips of the prophet, and he was cleansed by an act of God, right? And in the manger, we see Christ, whose very coming is a cleansing act of God for all our race. And so with gratitude, it seems like our response ought to be Similar to Isaiah's, right? God is talking with himself, saying, who are we going to send to do our work? Who's going to bear the kingdom? Who's going to do the things that we need to have done on the earth? And Isaiah responds to all that he's seen and the cleansing that he has received by saying, here am I, send me. And what I'm praying for me and what I'm praying for you, for all of us together, is this. That we will have such a clear picture of God this year. That we will be moved to invite his cleansing, his correction, and moved to volunteer to be his hands and feet. And all of that will be tied to who we perceive him to be. And so I'm praying for a greater revelation of God for us, that we will see him more clearly, that we will understand his ways, that we would perceive what it is he would like us to do, that we would not be so caught up in our own agenda, in our own plans, in our own experiences, that we just miss what ought to be plain before us. Because I'm convinced that God is continually revealing himself to us. Our trouble is ADHD. We're just distracted. We're doing our own stuff. We're living by our own perceptions. We're allowing our heart to tell us what it is we want to know about ourselves. And we haven't seen the glory and grandeur of the only Son of God who's completely revealing God the Father to us. At least not at the depth that we need to.
And so I'm praying. Will we open ourselves to the full revelation of God to the extent that we can handle it? To the extent that we can look on him and live? Are we willing to open ourselves to the full revelation of God? Or are we still carefully managing how much we will do and how much we will give and how much we will be when it comes to negotiating this relationship with our Heavenly Father. You know what I mean when I talk about negotiating a relationship, right? I mean, there are some folks you feel like you need to be around, but you don't need to be around them too much because being around them too much causes you pain or frustration or they never say the right thing or they never say thank you. Or, and so you just manage those relationships, right? You have some responsibility. Maybe they're a relative that's particularly cantankerous. And so you, you'll see them three or four times a year, but that's about all. Uh, you will definitely screen their phone calls, right? Because you don't really want to spend all that time talking to them about the things they care about, knowing they'll never ask you a thing about your life, right? So, so you manage relationships. And we, we say, just this much, but no more. Do we manage the relationship with the Father in the same way? I'll do just this much and no more. Don't, don't ask more than this of me, Father. Don't, don't take me to this extreme. Don't, don't ask me to make myself vulnerable in public for this or, or try things I'm not comfortable with or, or deal with people I don't like. Or don't, don't ask, will we continue to manage our relationship with the Father? Or will we just stop that and say, Father, I'm yours. I'm yours. What you ask, I will do. What you call me to be, I will be. I will surrender my prerogatives and I will walk in your ways. Because if you understand who he is, if you get a true picture of who he is, that's the only option there is. Anything less than surrender to God and to his desires for us is an admission that I don't really understand who he is. I don't really know how much he loves me. I don't really know how much he's invested in blessing the world through me. I don't really understand how he will use the difficulties of my life to build strength into me and to prepare me for the things that will happen to me in the future. I just don't understand all that stuff. Otherwise, I would trust him. And so I'm just feeling we need a new vision, a deeper vision. We need to perceive more clearly who it is that calls us, who it is that gave himself for us. I want to invite you to sing a song with me, perhaps so old that you don't know it, but we'll give it a shot. We'll do that after I pray. But I'm, I'm going to ask us to um, ask for that type of perception, ask for that vision. Oh, come, let us adore him. Oh, come, let us adore him. 
come let us adore him Christ the Lord for you alone are worthy for you Heavenly Father, grant to us a vision of you in all your majesty, in all your glory, in all of your splendor. Help us perceive you for who you are. Give us insight into who we are when we stand next to you. And enable us to respond in appropriate ways to the revelation of your glory. I pray, Lord Jesus, Help us to see you clearly. I ask this in your name. Amen. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Holy, holy, holy is the is filled with his glory the whole earth is filled with his glory the whole earth is filled with his glory holy is the Lord gracious God you are holy you're completely above us, completely beyond us, more than we can perceive or understand, and yet you have revealed yourself in Christ so that we might know that we are loved by you, so we might know that forgiveness of our sinfulness is available and that transformation into the character of Christ is possible for us all because you lived a holy life before us that we might know how to live. Teach us your ways. Reveal yourself to us in new ways this year, Lord Jesus. Show us ourselves and show us yourself. We ask humbly in your name, gracious Lord. And now may Christ grant you an increasing revelation of who he is and what he could be for you and for all of us as we seek to serve him now and always. Amen. Go in peace.